0: Hello everyone and welcome to the third episode of the Head Games Podcast. I am your host Brian Gottlieb. Along here with me is my co-host Jonathan Carter. Jonathan, what's going on man? How's this week going for you?
1: This week's pretty crazy. I wish I had Actual infinite hours. I have friends who joke that I have infinite hours and that's how I'm able to do everything. But this week is a thousand percent putting that to the test.
0: Infinite hours would be great. You know, I I got some feedback on Twitter the other day. Someone was saying they wish they had our cast, you know, 10 years ago. (laughs) I said that we had been working on time travel and we hadn't quite figured it out. If we do get it figured out, you basically have infinite hours at that point. You've you've cracked the code and you can do all these things that you want to get done. That would be sweet. One day. That's, That's next on the head games agenda. Yeah. Getting that time travel thing figured out. We'll make it episode
1: uh, one when we figure it out.
0: Right, right. Good idea. We can rewrite the whole history of the podcast. <laughs> anyway, welcome everyone. I, I'm thrilled to be here for our third episode. I had the chance this past weekend to be out among the Magic the Gathering community a little bit. And I know a lot of our listeners are coming to us from that community. The feedback I was receiving from people in that community, I'm just floored. I really, I, I know we talked about this last week. I have to say it means so much to us, the kind words you guys have said about the Head Games podcast. It sounds like we have hit a nerve, Jonathan, and people Mm -hmm. have been hungry for this kind of content. I'm super stoked that we're providing it. It seems like everyone's really working hard to apply all the things you talk about, all the lessons we've given so far. That's awesome to see. So if you guys are enjoying the podcast, you're among this group of fans that we seem to be developing very quickly. First, Thank you. I appreciate you. That's so awesome. Second, anything you can do to help us spread the word of the Head Games Podcast, we are eternally grateful. Feel free to tell your friends, your family, your loved ones. Hit us up on Twitter. Give us some retweets. All that good stuff for a nascent podcast, one that's just finding its footing, means the world to us. It's so appreciated. So if you're enjoying the Head Games Podcast, please let everyone know. And also, I want to mention that I know a lot of you are listening to us on the game podcast feed. We're also available on our own feed. So you go to iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, the Google Play Store, all these sources for podcasts and search for Head Games. Again, game spelled G-A-M-S, Head Games Podcast. And you will find us there. You can subscribe to just the Head Games Podcast. You know, if you have some non-magic playing friends you want to get involved in Head Games, send them that link. They get to skip all that magic stuff and just hear <laughs> us get right to the psychological
1: goodness. Yeah, and if there's an outlet that we're not on right now, short of uh, you know, recording this to a cassette, <laughs> just let us know and we'll figure out how that works too. Well, Brian will figure it out, but I'll support yeah. him.
0: Thanks for signing me up for that, Jonathan. <laughs> I now have to figure out all these archaic formats and get us on everything possible, but I, I will do it. Whatever you guys want to hear us on, we'll figure it out. So I, I want to come back and check in on last week's episode. We spoke at length about failure. And it just so happens I experienced some failure this weekend. So, (laughs) great time to do that episode.
1: Planned, of course.
0: Right, right. Intentional failure. So, I went to a Magic the Gathering tournament, did quite poorly. You know, the whole time I was thinking of our conversation on failure. I wanted to ask you a question, Jonathan, because we talked a lot about our mechanisms for coping with failure, how to make sure we take a lot out of failure, how to really maximize. Failure and turn it into an opportunity. And I do think I did a good job of that. I made sure to treat everything as a learning experience and, you know, made sure my emotions were well regulated and not being blinded by kind of this self-defeat, this this self-flagellation. But I almost wonder if maybe I was too good at this, because by using all these regulating mechanisms and, and really focusing on getting the most out of my failure. I almost didn't feel any sting at all. I didn't have that same level of disappointment that you know failure often carries. It, it felt like something was missing. Like where was my sadness? It wasn't coming to me. Is it possible to be almost too in tune with failure to the point where it becomes a detriment?
1: Maybe I, I think if you get to the point where you fail and. You just like, that's it. You failed and you move on and you don't necessarily think about it at all. Like maybe that's detrimental in the world where you are then going back to that competition and the failure basically didn't do anything. Um, But we talked last week how, I mean, failure should be data that you use. So I think you've clearly over the years built up some, some mechanisms to work on that emotional component after failure. But I'm also curious, like, so I I obviously have some insight into what you were doing last weekend, but we were talking earlier and I, I think your primary excitement from the weekend was you got to meet a bunch of listeners, you got to hang out with some friends, you got to go to a city you don't live in. And I just wonder if leading up to the event, if the anticipation of that was more of a focus than... You just happen to be at a magic tournament.
0: That's interesting. Maybe you're onto something. I can see that there there were a, a lot of other things going on this weekend besides the competition itself that kind of made my weekend feel like a success. You know, getting all this feedback on the podcast, being given actionable items I could use in the future to improve what we're doing here. All of those things were super important to me, and and obviously my focus is very much on the content creation side of things. Uh, so in a lot of ways you could say that my priority isn't necessarily on winning the event I'm participating in. It's, it's getting information that I can use to then create content and give benefit to my listener as opposed to myself. Now I'm wary of using that as an excuse, Mm -hmm. right? Because that's a a real easy cop-out. I just get to go to every tournament and say, well, I'm just here to make content (laughs) no matter what happens. And that frightens me a little bit. I don't want to lean on that. I want to be sure to keep my competitive edge. And it just crept into my mind for one second. Like, is all this normalization and rationalization of failure ultimately going to inhibit my results long-term? And my instinct is that, like you said, as long as I'm learning, I'm not doing myself too much harm. But I, I do wish I could tap a little bit more into that mm. killer instinct, that desire to win. And I'm sure like anything else, I'm guessing you're going to tell me that's a practicable and actionable item to be able to tap into that desire to you know, never suffer a loss.
1: Mm. Yeah, I think it, what's interesting too is if we were to separate, if we had two Brian's from last weekend, like the one who was sitting down round after round playing Magic and then if we're watching that, Brian, I doubt we're like seeing him lose and then like smiles and elation like popping all over your face and whatnot. Like I imagine losing still sucked, but then it was just overshadowed in a very good way by a lot of other, you know, so-called victories of, of all those other experiences. So, I don't, I think if you get to the point where you are making excuses and you start telling yourself, hey, it's fine to lose. Well, then you're probably at the point where winning and competing in magic just isn't necessarily your goal. And it, that doesn't mean that that's not okay. It's just I don't think that that can exist while still striving to be the, the best at it. So, like if you were to separate them, like I don't think you're happy about losing. You just happen to have an awesome weekend despite it. Hmm. And if, if, if that doesn't change how you then go into the next tournament, that's fine. Like if, if you're showing up to the next tournament or like the weeks leading up and you, you're still play testing, you're still thinking about like how can you gain edges against your opponents, then you're probably fine. And I imagine in that you're probably thinking back to this last tournament and thinking about things you could do differently. Um, but if you're going into the next tournament and you're like, you know what, there's going to be people there that are listeners and it's going to be great and doesn't matter. Well, then that's clearly not effective if your goal is to win.
0: I kind of agree with you. That sounds about where I came out on the situation. I wanted to check in with you, make sure my head was on straight. Take advantage of all this free counseling I get from you, (laughs) which I totally appreciate. (laughs) So now that I have done so, I think that we want to get into our main topic this week. Today we are talking about practice, not a game, but practice. That's it for my Alan Iverson impression. I promise we're not (laughs) going any any further than that. Practice, yes, practice. Effective practice seems like the start of any foundation of competitive success. We know in order to be a great whatever athlete, mental athlete, accountant, guitar player, all of these things require practice. So I thought today would be a great opportunity to talk with you, Jonathan, about how you treat practice in your field. Uh, Mm -hmm. Any kind of insight, information you can give us on how we can be better practicers of whatever goal we're trying to accomplish.
1: Definitely. We tend to call it deliberate practice. A lot of this study of this um, starts with a guy named Erickson. He's considered really like one of the experts in the field. And a lot of people, a lot of our listeners, I imagine you have heard of this uh, like 10,000 hour rule.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I've heard of that.
1: All right. So if I say 10,000 hour rule, like what comes to, what comes to mind for you? How would you describe it?
0: I think it's often expressed as the threshold for being a quote unquote expert. In any activity is having put in 10,000 hours with a
1: practice. Yep. And there's like some pop psych books that just called it that and didn't really go into the actual studies. And the idea is that you hit this magical 10,000 hour number and whatever you're doing and woo, you're an expert and you did it. And that there's like up until that point, you're not. And after that point, like, I guess it doesn't matter when really it, the studies that they were looking at, it's it's an average of 10,000 hours. It doesn't take into account what the performance is. But what's important about it is the idea that people who do become masters in whatever their endeavor is, don't do it overnight. They don't wake up tomorrow after deciding like hey i'm going to be an expert in whatever it is and suddenly they're there that it takes hours upon hours of deliberate focused work that's what separates us from the people who are are better at things than us and w- with that too like it's not a guarantee i mean if you and i wanted to be like nba centers and we're just like all right we're going to both be centers in the nba it's going to be great and somehow we put in 10,000 hours and we're still young and nimble enough to like do that. I don't know. Just imagine this magical world. like Very magical. I mean, this is so <laughs> yeah. far removed from reality. It's not even funny, but yeah. please continue. I'm only six feet tall. Like, so it doesn't matter how good I, I get. Like being an NBA center requires you to be basically a giant. So will I be good at ba- basketball if I apply 10,000 hours of deliberate focused work? Yeah, I imagine, but that doesn't mean I can do whatever I want. I can't just like suddenly grow one and a half feet so that I'm competitive with other people in that position.
0: I have to say, I'm really happy to hear your kind of, I guess rejection is a little harsh, but your problems with the 10,000 hour theory, because- just as a layperson, it's always seemed like such a dramatic simplification to me. Like, first of all, think about how many undefined terms and variables are contained in those kind of statements. Like, what is practice? What counts as effective practice? What is being an expert? What does that even mean? I have no idea what it means to be an expert at any one thing. So, I've always Kind of bristled at this suggestion that you, if you just put in a set number of hours of work, you are guaranteed greatness. And in a lot of discussions I see with various people who are trying to kind of reach a new competitive level, go from, you know, aspiring to professional essentially, I see that there is this almost entitlement where they feel like I've put in these hours, why aren't these things coming to me? And I have a feeling you're going to have a lot to say about what those 10,000 hours need to look like in order, if we agree upon this weirdo threshold that, as mm-hmm. you said, you know, is always moving and really isn't all that accurate. But if we are willing to accept that concede for the time being, what do those 10,000 hours have to look like? What does effective practice actually entail?
1: Yeah. And I'm not going to put an hour on because like average of 10,000 means like some people might do it in a thousand or like, oh, maybe they've already got some skills to leverage. Like the number doesn't really matter. But the the other bit that that whole concept doesn't even mention is so I can just randomly do stuff loosely associated to what I want to achieve for X amount of time and like suddenly I'm good. It doesn't make sense. But I think it's something that a lot of people do. If you think about how people tend to describe their endeavors at getting better. Like I think of some esports, like I'm just going to jam a bunch of leagues or I'm I'm just going to grind it out for a few hours every night. Mm -hmm. It just sounds like people are like their their intention for getting better is they're going to run into a wall over and over and over and they hope the wall eventually breaks.
0: Those two words, jam, grind, I hear them all the time, especially <laughs> in the context of online gaming. And I think you're exactly right. It gives this impression that if you just do it and you just force yourself against this object over and over, yes, it'll finally come through and you'll break through that
1: barrier and reach the next level. All right. Like, And just think of anyone who, who you know who's been great at anything. Like, I don't think Mozart just randomly threw different notes together and then... Got to this point in his life where he was like, "Well, and now I'm just really good at putting notes together, and like, look at all this sweet music I made." Right. Welcome. He got out
0: his his sundial or whatever <laughs> means of timekeeping they used at that time, and was like, "So yeah, yeah I've done the ten thousand hours. I am now yeah. qualified to write this piece. Good to go."
1: And and it, if people think of their favorite athletes or in esports, like you have these people who are significantly better than most people at video games. They didn't just decided, you know, I'm going to play some League of Legends, and tomorrow I'm going to be a pro. These pros behind the scenes, or these athletes behind the scenes, they do all sorts of stuff to get them good at what they do.
0: I totally believe that. And lay it out for us. What is it that these people are doing in their practice that Either you or I, or just the average listener we might have today, are missing what is what are, what are the key ingredients to getting their practice on par with people who do achieve
1: this level of greatness? Sure, I, there's likely a lot more that certain people do, but if we want to break it down into four pretty simple ideas, I think number one, people Wait, hold on, you don't you don't
0: have a catchy catchphrase for your four ideas. You're about to revolutionize the game <laughs> of practice right now. What's the catchphrase?
1: I have not spent 10,000 hours on being good at marketing or okay. catchphrases. So unfortunately, it's a glaring weakness in my my practice. <laughs> well,
0: start putting in those hours. I'm going to need better catchphrases out of you All for the, right. the set of uh, hotness we drop on people here. Okay. Well, if we think of one, we'll just edit
1: it in after our time did. machine. Yeah. So number one, going into practice, people who have an effective practice session, people who grow from it, they go into each practice session with a clear specific goal in mind. They know, okay, I'm going to be practicing for X amount of time, or I'm going to play X amount of games. And I have this target that I'm trying to get better at. So like when I played lacrosse, I mean, I went into, we would play wall ball a bunch solo. It's just like you pick up a lacrosse stick, you throw a ball against the wall. It's quite literally what it sounds like, but it's a way of getting a bunch of reps on your dominant hand, on your non-dominant hand, practicing the transition from dominant to non-dominant. And so the goal would be to hit like 100 in a row on each and then 100 while switching. So I practice until that happened. So people need to figure out in whatever they're about to do, like what is, what is my goal with this session? Tell us a little bit about what an effective
0: goal looks like. Should it be a numerical style goal? Is it enough to have more ethereal goals. Like Mm -hmm. I want to feel good about my ability to ride switch. If you're training snowboarding or Mm -hmm. can it, can it be softer than I need to do X number of reps or X hours
1: of reps? Yeah. Yeah, I think one, uh, one easy way is throwing numbers on it, but there there's absolutely feelings or like achievements you can make that, that you want to go for. I think switching, like riding switch is fine. That's a good example of it. Like as long as after you're done practicing, you can look back and and see if the needle moved or if it didn't. Just because you set a goal doesn't mean you achieve it, but it at least gives you a direction for what you're about to do. So, a bunch of Overwatch pros I've witnessed, they'll go into just practice games with AI bots before any scrimmages or anything and they're just going to play for X amount of time, like maybe they have 10 minutes beforehand and they're just going to hit as many headshots as possible with Widow. And so I've seen players like who are exceptional at Overwatch, better than most people. They're sitting there shooting against bots for like 10, 15 minutes before a scrimmage. And they're only accepting like the success for them is each time they get a headshot in one shot. And they're just trying to hit as many of those as possible in whatever time allotment they have.
0: Right. And for people who don't either play FPSs or specifically follow Overwatch, I think that the usage of bots is typically something that is confined to players who are just starting out with the game.
1: Right. Yeah. You you think you would get better practice playing against people who are alive and as good as you. And that's likely true. But a good way of warming up is playing against the computer because it's easy and you can just start it whenever you want.
0: Right. And the most important thing, though, about that takeaway is that they're doing this easy thing, practicing against the computer, but they're doing it with a particular focus. Like, I need to achieve this goal in this easy thing. And they're making the goal more difficult than it would be to just get in there and pop off some rounds against the computer, which ultimately isn't going to do anything for them.
1: Right. And I've had players who are exceptional say things to me like, oh, I'm practicing my Widow headshots because I'm not good at this hero yet. And Widow, just for if you don't play Overwatch or know it. it's a sniper character, so it's a lot of precision aim. And then I watch them load up a game with bots and hit like 30 consecutive headshots using only 30 rounds. Like they're obviously good, but even at that level, they they're not satisfied without keeping that skill fresh.
0: That's a really interesting application of practice in kind of a new sport, a new burgeoning field, because I think, you know, we're pretty close in age, we're Mm -hmm. getting older. And I think it's fair to say I didn't grow up in an esports world. Esports is something that came about as I was, you know, into my 20s, basically. And now being 35, it's something that I feel like, in some ways, I missed the boat on. A lot of my (laughs) practice sessions are... Based in real hard sports, not esports. So, in you know, football practice, basketball practice, baseball practice, I did all those things. I've never been in an esports practice session though, and it's always really interesting to me to hear what they consist
1: of. Yeah, it's it's mind blowing. Like the first times I started doing any psych work with with esports, it was like I I come from a sport background, so I know what it's like to to have practices. And as you start to experience it with with a digital medium, it's it's crazy, but it's really just plug in playing a sport with something on a, on a screen.
0: Right, right. All right, so it sounds like step one of effective practice, goal setting. Step two, what is step two of effective practice?
1: This sounds obvious, I think, but good practice involves maintaining focus for the duration. So either minimizing distraction or just finding a way that keeps you wholly focused on the task that you're doing.
0: So I guess I would ask you to clarify a little bit what you mean by wholly focused. Does that mean you know, there, there can't be interruptions. It has to be only that task for a set period of time. Just give us a little bit more background about maintaining focus, how exactly we should be checking in with ourselves to make sure we're maintaining focus. Cause obviously brain drift is a thing before you know it, you're thinking about something else. So are there techniques we can use to make sure we're staying engaged the entire time and maintaining our focus?
1: Yeah. I mean the human brain has limits. So scheduling and breaks if this is going to be something something you're practicing for a longer duration for sure i think an easy example is if you think about people studying for like an exam focused practice would be all right i have 50 minutes set aside here's the knowledge i'm attempting to gain in this 50 minutes and i only do things that add to that knowledge. I don't have my phone out. I'm not tabbing to a window with Facebook or Twitter, but like all of the actions I'm taking within that 50 minutes is either... I'm not saying it's not okay to pause and take a breath or like turn your brain off for a second, but really you should be structuring practice in a way that you're leveraging all of that time wholly towards whatever goal it is.
0: And I think you mentioned this seems kind of obvious and... Common sensical, but it's crazy how much I see people do things poorly in the name of practice. Well, it's just practice. It doesn't matter. Uh, I wasn't thinking hard enough. I, it's only practice. Who cares? And that kind of calls back to this point as well. You're not maintaining focus where you're letting yourself off for doing things at a suboptimal level. I also think this calls back to the first point as far as jamming and grinding. Jamming and grinding are not words to me, which imply singular focus, which imply engagement with my task. It implies I'm just doing it. And as long as I do it, things will get better. But I think focus very much calls back
1: to those two terms as well. Yeah. And it doesn't mean you can't have fun. You're likely doing something because you enjoy doing it or you can find an aspect of it that's enjoyable, but do so while so you're not wasting your time. So like if I'm doing, doing something for an hour and I'm trying to get better at it, well, if I just distract myself for half of it, well, then I really only practice for half an hour.
0: That's a really beautiful point about time efficiency. And, you know, time is everything these days. We fight so much for, for scheduling to be able to accomplish everything we want to do in a day because we're distracted from all these different areas. And I think if people realized how much more of an impact just focused work would do and, and, and how much more you're able to get done in say 30 minutes of uninterrupted work versus three hours of constantly interrupted oh, yeah. work. I'll always take 30 minutes of uninterrupted work, being able to get into a zone and actually get things done. That's how I work. Do I battle with myself sometimes? Am I reaching for my phone? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But in my best, most productive, most, I would say growth instilling moments, it's with singular focus every time.
1: Yeah. And so, a lot of that is some self-awareness of what tends to distract you or what's likely to get in your way of keeping that focus and trying to stage your environment so that those distractions are minimal. And so, you, you mentioned your phone, like if it's a task that you could just stop and look at your phone, put it somewhere else or step away from your computer. Sometimes if to go back to studying, like you probably don't want to like lounge out on your couch with a textbook with like in front of a TV with a remote right next to you. You're just asking for <laughs> right. that that focus to just not happen.
0: Yeah, you set focus traps all around you, and then right. say, "Oh, I'm definitely going to do fine." Good luck, me. Like, let's see if I can do this. Yeah, I I agree. That's not a good system to, to ensure success. Anything else to say about? step two of Jonathan's poorly named four-step system for effective practice? I don't think so. Okay. So
1: step one, if they're even steps, they're they're all happening at the same time. We'll call them step one because we want to market it. Right. (laughs) So we have a very defined idea goal of what we're going to achieve here. Um, We figured out a way that we are going to minimize how much we get distracted so that we can stay focused on it. That's one and two. The next thing is... Making sure that the difficulty of what we're doing matches how good we are. And so I like to think of this as you know, like they talk about like dangling the carrot to like so you're constantly reaching for this carrot. That's your goal. But the idea is to to never reach it. So as soon as you improve in your skill, make whatever you're practicing a little bit harder. We get bored pretty easily if things are too easy. so So this is all about just making sure that the practice is hard enough. One for preventing boredom, but also if our goal here is to get better at something, like constantly practicing the thing we're already good at without changing any dynamics or making it harder, or like we talked last episode, building in failure. Right. It's not going to do much for us getting better.
0: Yeah. This seems like a great callback to last episode and a way to instill failure into your practice routines. It's funny. When you were talking about moving the carrot, I was thinking a little bit about the things I'm currently competing in. Besides magic, the three other things I play a lot of right now are Street Fighter, Mm -hmm. League of Legends, and Hearthstone. And those three things all have this carrot system built into their very core. In League of Legends, it's the tier system, you know, silver to gold, gold to platinum. Mm-hmm. In Street Fighter, same system, uh, another tiered system for online play. And Hearthstone has the ladder system where you climb ranks 25 to one and eventually reach legend. And in all of those climbs, you're consistently being paired against better and better people or worse and worse people if, if you're losing, if you're going the other way but the system is designed to keep you playing at a challenge all the time and i am very sure that psychologically this is a huge reason why all three of these games are super super successful is that they challenge us and they prevent us from getting bored because you're always playing someone who's probably better than you at the moment i mean part of the climb is you have to get to the people above you so you're you're always challenged every time you log on and i think we as competitors
1: love ladder systems they're so good for instilling that desire to compete and the people who get frustrated by it like when they're losing a bunch or they're stuck at a certain elo they're probably the people who are practicing randomly it's like well i'm gonna pick this off meta champion and league that i'm mildly good at and i'm just only gonna play that and weird now the meta is hostile and it doesn't work and i'm just gonna keep trying it and then i fail like well well yeah Uh, you're just trying the same thing over and over again. Even if it's a champ you're good at, but it's just not working, there's probably something that you're doing wrong and you're just not practicing it.
0: And there's also included in this group of people, probably the ELO deniers as well. And I'm I'm sure you've come across these people. If I was only... At a higher rank, then I would win all the time because at this lower rank, people, people are too are bad. bringing me down. Yeah, yeah. I, I love that. That's yeah. one of my favorite fallacies. Maybe we'll do a whole episode about that sometime because I, I feel like there's probably a lot to unpack
1: there. Yeah, it's our brain's fault. Our brain is stupid sometimes, but we just play into it. I believe that. Yeah, but like in, in general in this, I think part of it is working on what you're good at is fun. It's fun being successful. And working on weaknesses sucks. Like that that's just how it is. But it's by working on our weaknesses or making what we're starting to get good at a little bit harder. Therefore, like there's probably some weakness in that. That's what keeps us getting better.
0: I, I do agree with what you're saying, but I also think that for me personally, I love picking up new things and having that challenge of getting to a competent place and building that level of understanding. So when I you know, I'm first jumping into this pool and everything's so far out of my depth. I really have no idea what's going on. And part of the process of pulling in all these different sources of information and, and finally getting myself to a competent place, I like that struggle. Do I want to succeed quickly? And, you know, if I just got beaten to death, would I eventually give up on it? Possibly. But in general, that Cluelessness can drive me sometimes. Am I unique in that? Is it everyone who just wants to confirm what they're good at? Or are there people who kind of operate differently and, and look for those challenges and try and find
1: new good things? I don't think it's everyone. I think it's, I feel like it's more that everyone has probably had an experience like that, where there's just something that's frustratingly difficult and it's in the way of them. Like if they can figure out or like motivate themselves to practice it or think about how to practice it properly, like that will unlock like a a new level of skill that it's just hard to do at that point. Like I think about a year ago, I blew out my ankle skating. Like I grew up playing lacrosse. Uh, I switched playing to adult hockey a couple of years ago and then promptly blew out my ankle, which is wonderful. And if you've never skated before, it's really unintuitive for the human body to Dance around on blades on ice, and then like try to play a sport while doing it. Yes, um, it is. <laughs> but like coming back from injury, I am significantly better still to this day at stopping on one side than I am at, at stopping on the other side to do a hockey stop. And there was a very long time post injury where I like just didn't even try because like I justified in my head like you know what I can stop. It's like it's not optimal. It's harder to change direction at, at any amount of speed if I if I can't do both. But man, it sucks trying it. So it was more fun to just like skip the learning part and just play adult hockey.
0: That's interesting because I have a similar situation. I only learned snowboarding in the past few years. And going back uh, about a year and a half ago now, I was on a rail, fell off the rail, landed squarely on my shoulder, tore my labrum and required shoulder surgery. And I have not been back on a rail since that point because... You know, I failed and it's kind of intimidating to take on this thing I had failed at in the past and, you know, had a catastrophic injury from. Uh, I haven't been able to get myself to the place where I'm willing to try it again. So I guess I tooted my own horn a little bit (laughs) on taking on challenges. But if I'm being honest, here's the challenge that I've avoided for, you know, about two years now.
1: Right. And and there's a lot more going into both of ours, like fear of re-injury is a thing, right. fear of failure sucks. But if we're honest uh, you getting better at snowboarding, like if you're looking to do tricks and such or be able to be better at rails, like and me being a better overall skater for hockey, like that will not happen until we figure out a way to practice, whatever that weakness is. Right.
0: Right. In my case, my wife is also yelling at me a lot that I should never get on a rail again. So I do, I do have a little (laughs)
1: bit of a built-in
0: excuse. That's fair. We we might work through that. We'll convince her at some point that the rails will be okay.
1: Right. And so, like, maybe it's if we talk about constantly moving this carrot, it's it's not about just jumping straight up onto a rail like that's. But maybe thinking about like what are some intermediary steps you can take that you're not going to be too distracted or fearful to keep focus on that, like it'll get progressively and progressively harder. And then one day you're just Sean White or something.
0: Right, just gradually building up to that point and and keeping my carrot moving forward. Mm -hmm. I like it. All right, so it sounds like we have defined step three of the poorly named system. Are we ready for step four?
1: Sure. And this one we talked a little bit about last week, but the idea is to build in feedback loops every step of the way. And so last week we talked about how it's really important to have the awareness with ourself uh, about after we fail, like what was it that failed? Did we just do something wrong? Was it a fluke? Was it variants? Or are there steps that I can control that would lead to more success? And we also talked about how other people can be that feedback mechanism for us. And so, when we're trying to get better at something, we need to be evaluating really after each practice, like did we hit that goal that we set? And if we did... Well, then we need to figure out where we're moving that carrot to. And we can do this with ourselves a lot of the time. It's also super effective to other people give you feedback. And then like an inadvertent way of feedback is find someone who's really good at what you're trying to accomplish and see what they do. That's that's like feedback in another way. We're vicariously seeing what someone else is doing to get at where we want to be.
0: So have you come across dishonesty In feedback loops? Because I feel like a lot of times I see people whose practice, whose testing is influenced by their own inability to accept the conclusions that that practice session put before them. And I'm Mm -hmm. wondering if that's something you come across at the higher levels of competition or if that's just like a lower level competition thing. Like you can't make it to the higher levels with that kind of attitude.
1: Mm, So you're saying people test practice, whatever it is, and then they find reasons that despite the data sitting in front of them, that they're getting better
0: or even manipulating the data. I mean, someone who is supposed to do 12 reps of a workout uh, and stops at 11 and still yeah. marks 12 on their sheets. <laughs> I mean, is, is this a, again, is this a lowered level of competition thing? Because I've certainly seen it in lots of people I've worked with over mm-hmm. time. I've seen people, cheat to influence the outcome of playtesting and Magic the Gathering, which is (laughs) incredible. You're doing it to learn and they're still cheating. Obviously, eventually I saw this person banned for cheating. They were almost (laughs) sociopathic, but still it was an incredible thing to see someone who was supposed to be collecting data and still influencing the data to confirm the belief that they were doing well.
1: I I won't say that it's exclusive to lack of skill i would say that it's absolutely a barrier that there's a world where you can improve despite this like handicapping like you're you're basically taking your practice sessions and you're doing stuff and like maybe you did something in there that moved you along and you got a little bit better but the feedback you're collecting from it not doing anything for you because you're setting yourself up to go randomly in some direction like okay well that was quote unquote successful, haha, ha, joke, joke. And then I'm gonna go. Do, I'm gonna change what I'm doing next practice as a result of that. And I might be just doing the wrong thing.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, it doesn't make any sense to me either. So I was just curious if it's something you come across often, if it's a rare form of like. I, I don't know. It's a very striking thing to see someone who's so... And it calls back again to the the ELO thing where oh, mm. I, I'm just in the wrong ELO. If I was in the right ELO, I would be winning all the time. It calls back to that same kind of mindset of kind of entitlement, kind of thinking they're better than they actually are. And I think that the point I'm trying to make is that we should be careful not to do this in micro ways. Because I think there's ways to introduce the same kind of inaccuracy in our data and not reach that same level of kind of psychopathy that Mm -hmm. we're discussing here. Uh, You know, not finishing your sprints out, stopping before you hit the line, all these little Mm -hmm. kind of cheats, they can add up to creating a less
1: effective practice routine. For sure. I think part of it is just your relationship with feedback. Like you need to figure out, if this is something that I'm trying to achieve and I'm already putting time into it, like you're saying, like, Make that time worthwhile. But also, we know that successful people are able to see feedback as a mechanism to improve. They're able to see other people's success as something they need to aspire to or something they can mimic. So, like you mentioned in playtesting and magic, like somebody lying, like, well, instead if you just acknowledge that whatever the other person did beat you, and so maybe it's the deck they're playing, or maybe it's them, maybe they just outplayed you. Figure out what that is, and then you can figure out what you can do to beat that. If you just say, like, oh, yeah, well, I won, it's fine. You just threw out that whole testing session. Like You just wasted your time, just so you feel good.
0: Right. Yeah, I think one of the things about practice is, you have to get over the desire to always have it feel good. There has to be failure and trepidation and battles throughout practice. And that's really where you forge top level competitiveness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some people want to do it the easier way, but it just doesn't work. That's, that's the, that's the bottom line. You can't take the easy approach to practice.
1: Yeah. And, and with like, we can't control the, the moment where we cross this magical barrier and become an expert at something. Like, we can't figure out, all right, well, that's where that dot is and I know exactly when I'm going to get there. But we can control everything about practice. Like, it, that is where we can tune all the dials, manipulate all the sliders. And so, when you're doing that, like, relish in the fact that you're you're controlling your own destiny, so to speak. Like, if you figure out when practice is working and what that looks like and you don't cheat it or rob it and and you're doing all these things properly, like... If I make all of my practices deliberate, effective, and I figure out when I'm improving and when I'm not, and I like constantly reiterate, well, I'm going to hit that outcome that I'm looking for, but I can't just wake up tomorrow and decide that I want to be an NBA center and and just like arrive.
0: No, spot on. I, I agree with so much of this. Why don't just one more time, just for our listeners' sake, real quick, run us through the four steps of effective practice. Jonathan's poorly named four steps for effective practice
1: one more time. (laughs) The no-name four steps. Uh, So first, you want to think about what's a clear, deliberate, specific goal for the practice session you're going to do. Second, you want to think about what are the ways that you can set yourself up for success by maintaining focus for it, removing distractors. Third, you want to constantly move the carrot. So each practice session should be harder than the last one as you improve at a skill and you should like not make it impossible, but constantly make it a little bit harder than the last one so that you're actually improving. And finally, all along the way, perhaps even inside a practice, build in feedback loops, whether it's your own self-assessment of how are things going, what could I do differently, what could I keep doing, or getting somebody else that you trust to provide feedback for you and use that feedback to inform your next practice.
0: Awesome. I will definitely be applying these four steps myself going forward to my practice scenarios. One last point I want to touch on before we wrap up today. Talk to me a little bit about different forms of practice, Mm. because one of the things that comes up a lot in my practice for the various things I compete at is study versus application. Do you have any thoughts on how much of practice should be assigned to actually doing the thing that you're trying to achieve and how much of practice should be assigned to learning about the thing you're trying to achieve, watching the thing you're trying to achieve, just generally studying the thing you're trying to achieve?
1: Hmm. So like in a sense, like watching it versus doing it yourself
0: Basically, yeah, and it doesn't have to be specifically watching it. It can be reading about it. It can be, you know, any form of educating yourself about the task you're trying to do, besides actually competing in it.
1: Yeah, I think it's all important. I, I think the mindset you enter those tasks with needs to be one of it. It also needs to be deliberate. So I can't just watch my competition for fun and not actually actively process it. Whereas like if I'm watching a match of my chosen performance and I'm thinking about like, what is that player doing? What were they probably thinking? What would I do in this situation? What could I do differently? And you're almost treating that like sports does it all the time with like game film. Like they watch something and they, they analyze and judge and critique everything that went on. You're still actively engaged with what it is you're doing. So that's still effective. And I I think for those sessions, you can still think about like, what's my goal coming out of here? Like, what am I trying to learn? And all the other things still apply. Uh, I think if you're watching something passively or you're just studying something or reading for fun and you're not actively doing something with it, that's likely a lot less effective.
0: So essentially, make sure we're taking the four points of the poorly named system Mm -hmm. and having them work for us in study time as well. Study time is not this time without goals, without feedback, without the carrot in front of us, all those things have to still exist for us to really benefit from, you know, stepping away from the activity itself and seeking some other means of learning.
1: For sure. And and observational learning is good. I mean, watching somebody else do something, it, it, it can even just build your confidence. If I see someone else who's also a human who Maybe I think has similar skill set to me achieve something. well, then I likely think I can achieve it too. so there's there's added benefits like just mentally beyond the skill improvement.
0: I think all of this is super useful. I can't wait to apply it to my own practice. I think that some of these mechanisms are things I've built in subconsciously, mm-hmm. but I have a feeling that consciously engaging with all of these points will have a bigger benefit rather than just having them floating in the background of my mind as something I kind of do and have certainly specifically done in other spots. But I want to make sure that going forward, I have all of these uh, different four steps built into my practice routine. So thank you for setting us up with these, Jonathan. I want to let people know, I think next week for the topic of our cast... I want to do a Twitter poll. How does that sound, Jonathan? We'll come up with some ideas about what we could talk about, and and we'll put it out there. And you can follow us at twitter.com backslash headgamespodcast. Uh, Again, games spelled G-A-M-S. And at some point after this episode drops, I'll put up a Twitter poll for our next week episode, and you all can vote on what you want to hear us talk about. So thank you for listening today. Thank you, Jonathan, for the hot tech, as it were, as far as practice goes, I am excited to apply this and we'll be back next week to play some more head games.